Good morning, friends. I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. Really grateful uh, that you all are here today. One of my favorite spiritual writers uh, is the late Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard often said that God is far more interested in who you are. Uh Uh-oh. I think we're okay. Uh, God is far more interested in who you are and what you're becoming than anything that you do or accomplish. Think about that. I wonder if you believe that, that God is far more interested in who you are and what you're becoming more than anything that you do or accomplish. Now, if that's true, one of the great questions is, what is preventing you from becoming that person? What's preventing you from becoming the person that God wants you to be that maybe even you want to be? We're in a sermon series that we're calling The Cruciform Life, and the premise of this series is that the cross, the cross of Jesus, especially the way that we think about it in this season of Lent, is not just the place where Jesus died, but the cross is also meant to show us how to live. And that includes our identity, the way that we think about ourselves. The cross is meant to shape who you are, the way you think about yourself and how you live in the world. So that's what we're talking about today is a cruciform identity. What does it mean to have a sense of the self that is shaped by the cross? That's what cruciform means, an identity that is shaped by the cross. So what we're going to do is we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 4-7. We're continuing in this letter that we began last week. Paul is writing to his friends who live in Corinth his friends that both he loves and uh, he is infuriated by. Uh, He is writing to appeal to them to come back to the way of the cross. So let's pray as we go to God's word. Our Father, we, we need you. Oh, we need you. And we need your spirit because without your spirit, we can do nothing. So I pray for help this morning for myself personally. I pray for help for all of us that as we read your word, We would not only understand it today, but that we would respond to it with all of our lives with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear God's word, friends, from 1 Corinthians. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes." He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, Why do you boast as though you did not? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Well, let's just jump right in. We've been reading this book from 1 Corinthians, and we've been seeing that this church, uh, this community of Christians is 
rife with conflict. Lots and lots of division and factions and power plays. And as you see in this text, one group of people in the church siding with one leader over and against another group that sides with another. And what we see in this text is that Paul is saying that one of the great root causes of this conflict is boasting. Boasting. Did you see that theme in the text? First, first verse of the text, he says, now no more boasting about human leaders. Last verse in the text, he says, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Boasting is a huge theme in 1 Corinthians. In fact, that word boast appears 20 times just in this book of 1 Corinthians alone. Boasting relates to how we think about ourselves, what we take pride in, how you define yourself, how you identify yourself. And what we see that Paul is saying here is that the way that they were boasting, the way that they were defining and thinking about themselves was the source of so much pain and so much conflict in this community. The way we think about ourselves, the way that we boast is broken. And this is tearing the world apart. Whenever we talk about how we think about ourselves, we get into issues of self-esteem. Tim Keller, in his great book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which is where I've taken a lot of this content today, notes that both traditional and modern cultures treat the issue of self-esteem very, very differently. If you know anything about traditional cultures, and there's many traditional cultures in the world today, many traditional cultures believe that the problem with the world is that people have too high a view of themselves, right? And so what traditional cultures seek to do is to bring people low, bring them down, bring them down to their place, because that's what's wrong with the world. People think too highly of themselves. Now, modern Western cultures like our own, on the other hand, think that the great problem with the world is that people think too low of themselves. There's, everyone thinks there's a big self-esteem problem. And so what we need to do is not bring people down, but to lift them up, right? To encourage them, to flatter them, to tell them great things about who they are, to give every kid on every team a trophy, you know, not just the kid who wins the tournament. That's why my house is full of like 93 trophies, right? So that's the problem in the West is we think that that's the, it's the basis of modern education, the basis of modern psychology, you know, the criminal justice system is that people have too low a view of themselves. So which is it? Is the problem the world that people think too highly of themselves or is it that they think too low of themselves? Huh? You know? Well, Paul is giving us an entirely different vision of the problem completely. He, he is saying it's not one, it's not the other, it's not traditional, it's not progressive. The way that we think about ourselves is none of these things. That it, we are called to a totally different way. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to a totally different way of thinking about who you are, and it is a cruciform way. It is a way that is defined by Jesus and his cross and is rooted in Jesus and his cross. The cross, this is my theme today, the cross is meant to change our concept of self-identity. The cross of Jesus can change your concept of self-identity. Okay, so we're going to look at these three things today. First, we're going to look at the natural condition of the self. What's the natural condition of the ego apart from the gospel? Second, we're going to look at the transformed sense of self, what the gospel can do to the self. And third, we're going to look at how we can get that new self. Okay, so the natural condition, the transformed condition, and how we can get it. Are you guys with me here today? Okay, great. Let's first look at the natural condition of the self. Paul said last week, one of my favorite phrases in the whole book of 1 Corinthians, he says, are you not acting merely human? 
You're acting like a bunch of humans. He says you're thinking about yourself in a way that people without Jesus and without the Spirit think about themselves. Well, what is that natural condition, the way that we think about ourselves? Well, look with me at chapter 4, verse 6. This is a fascinating verse. Look at the end of the verse. He says, then you will not. Now, your translation might say, take pride in. This translation, the NIV, says, you will not be puffed up. Circle that word, puffed up, if you like to take notes. That is one Greek word, the Greek word physuu. It is a very unusual word that an ancient writer would use to describe pride. It's a word that Paul likes a lot. He uses it six times in this book in 1 Corinthians. And it literally means uh, swollen, distended, overly inflated. He's giving a word picture of an organ in the human body that is swollen or is painfully distended beyond its proper size. We, we use this language even now. We say, oh, he's got such a big head. Or she's full of hot air. Or he has an overinflated sense of self-importance, right? Paul says that, that puffed up, is the natural condition of the human ego. Now, if that's true, what does that mean? We can learn a lot of things about this amazing word picture. First of all, what we learn is that the ego, the self, in the natural condition is very painful. If anything is swollen or distended, it's painful, right? Have you noticed, brothers and sisters, that you don't really pay attention to something in your body unless something is wrong with it, right? I didn't come here thinking this morning, man, my knees, look at that. They just work so well. They feel so great. And my fingers, look at this. They bend so easily. This looks very weird, I know. But, but look, it's, it, the point is this, is that none of us go around thinking about how great different parts of our bodies feel, right? Unless something is wrong with it. And then all attention is drawn to it. And what he's saying is it's the fact, here's the lesson here. The fact is that we are always drawing attention to what? The ego. Always concerned about how we look. Always concerned about how others are thinking of us always concerned about how we're being treated, about how we're being valued. And what that shows is the fact that the ego is always drawing attention to itself means that the ego, there's something wrong. The ego's in pain. I read a really interesting article this week by a psychologist named Marilyn Davis, and she was writing about feelings, how people often say, well, that hurt my feelings, or you hurt my feelings. And what she notes in this article is that actually your feelings can't hurt You know, if you've seen the movie, the Pixar movie, Inside Out, you know, there's five basic feelings that all humans have. I'm mad, sad, glad, bad, or scared. You know, I feel one of those things. And you can't hurt a feeling. You can't hurt mad. You can't hurt glad, right? What what, what happens is when you feel snubbed or ignored or overlooked, you feel bad because your ego has been hurt. Your ego has been hurt, and your feelings are signaling the pain. Just like your toes hurt, if your toes hurt, you would always be thinking about them. If your ego is hurt, you are always drawing attention to it. Are you, are you with me? Right? So the ego is in pain. Second, though, it says it's busy. It's busy. If the ego is always in pain, then it is always busy trying to seek a remedy, trying to fix itself. And one of the ways that the ego does this is through comparing and competing and contract. Look at verse 6. You are puffed up or taking pride in one of us over and against the other. This is a classic way that humans seek to fix the problem we feel within ourselves by creating tribes, by comparing and competing with the people around us. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, has an amazing book uh, chapter on pride where he writes this. 
Pride takes no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next person. You may think you're proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking, but you really aren't. You're only proud of being more successful, more intelligent, more good-looking than other people. When you are in the presence of people who are much more successful, intelligent, and good-looking, you lose all pleasure in what you had because you really had no pleasure in it to begin with. Whoa, do you, does that resonate with you? Oh my gosh, there's like, this is scarily uh, true of, of, of my life. There's too many examples to give you. I'll just give you one. A few weeks ago, uh, we were in Houston. A bunch of us from the church were in Houston for our denominational conference where churches from all around the country in our denomination come together. And, I, and one day, I was in two different meetings of pastors, okay? In the first meeting, I was the pastor of the biggest church in the room, and everybody knew it. And everybody kept talking to me and giving me attention and asking me questions about third and the way we were doing things. And, and I was just feeling full, you know? <laughs> just feeling full, yeah. And then that evening, I went to another meeting. I was, so I was invited to this meeting of, like, the pastors of the biggest churches in the denomination. And in that meeting, I'm pretty sure I was the pastor of the smallest church represented in the room. And in fact, the guy leading the meeting, he was like, why don't we all go around and share about something we're excited about in our church? And the first guy was like, well, we just started our 16th campus, dude. And then the next guy was like, we just installed our hologram machine. And, you know, and I'm like, we have a website. You know, like, uh, uh, and I'm just feeling like smaller and, and, and more and more deflated. Now, this is telling you what a messed up pastor you have, uh, but it, it's also showing that, I mean, this is the way envy works. Envy um, is, is essentially always feeling uh, diminished. The self is feeling diminished by the successes and the happiness of the people around you, and this creates this horrible pattern because there's always somebody who's prettier. There's always somebody who's better. There's always, always somebody who has more. In fact, Bertrand Russell said, envy, listen to this. This is amazing. He says, envy consists in seeing things never in themselves always in relation. Isn't that amazing? So if you desire glory, you may envy Napoleon, but Napoleon envied Caesar, Caesar envied Alexander, and Alexander envied Hercules, who never even existed, (laughs) right? So the ego is in pain, the ego is busy comparing, desperately trying to fill this sense of inadequacy and emptiness, and then finally we see from this word picture uh, that the ego is fragile. All this painful, busy activity makes the ego highly fragile, because anything that is overinflated, what can happen? Pop! It can be punctured, right? It can, or it can expand so much that it breaks and it stretches. Now, you might be saying, look, I don't have a problem of self-importance. My problem is I, I just feel, I, in fact, I feel bad about myself most of the time. Well, look, that's the same thing. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are two sides of the exact same coin because both of them are a preoccupation with the self. Both of them are the ego drawing attention to itself. The ego, uh, the self is like those, um, those crazy like Gumby men at the used car lots. You know what I'm talking about? That you see going up and down and up and down all day long. So that's like us. Like uh, uh, when what we have invested our identity in is going well, whoosh, we're up. You know, the numbers come in. We get in a a raise, the applause that we crave, we get the control that we seek, the test grade that we've been after, we get into the college we wanted, the, 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 the attention that we long for, we're, whoosh, we're up. But if those same things in which we have invested our identity 
we lose or are depleted or the numbers don't come in or we don't get the promotion or whatever it is, you know, we go back down and there we are all, all day long. And the funny thing is, is that you think is you strive that you will get to the point in your life where that doesn't happen anymore because you have finally sort of arrived, but that never actually happens. You stay in this incredibly up and down, busy, competing, fragile place your whole life. A classic example of this is this interview that Madonna gave in Vogue magazine that is now famous, in which she is just so honest. She says, my drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel like I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it never will. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's Madonna. She's neurotic, right? But no, she's not. In fact, I admire her for saying this. She's, in fact, I would say she knows herself way better than most of us do. Because she knows the way that the ego works in its natural state. Always hungry, always in pain, always busy, comparing, competing, never able to arrive, never satisfied, never at rest. What a horrible place to be, right? Yet, this is the place that many of us live every single day. How can we stop this? Well, look, Paul, in some mysterious way, has. He has experienced a transformed sense of self. And he is demonstrating to the Corinthians a different way to relate to the self, to the ego, that only the gospel of the cross can bring. Look at verse 3 with me. This is a fascinating verse. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Now, see that? He's using courtroom language, which is very fitting because we put ourselves in a courtroom every day. We're on trial seeking a verdict. The verdict is that I matter that I am worth something, that I am important. This is what Madonna is after. This is what you and I are after. And every day, the evidence is mounted up either for the defense or the prosecution. You know, I'm winning the verdict. I matter. I'm losing the verdict. I don't, you know, every day we're in that. And Paul is saying, I'm not there anymore. I don't care about that. I'm not looking for a verdict from you. It's a very small thing. He says, I don't care what you think. I don't care what anybody else thinks. My identity is no longer tied to your evaluations of me or anybody else's. Now, if he just stopped there, let's be honest, this would be very similar to sort of modern Western psychology, right? We say this all the time. It doesn't matter what other people think. All that matters is what you think about yourself. Don't care about other people's standards or opinions. Just be concerned about your own standards and opinions. It's like Elsa, you know, Frozen. You know, I don't care what they say, let it go. You know, she, this is, that was beautiful, wasn't it? She, she, uh, she, this is her philosophy. It doesn't matter what they say. Who cares about what they think? All that matters is what you think about you. Is that what Paul's saying? No. Look, he goes on, verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you. I do not even judge myself. Keller paraphrases it this way. I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me, and I have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me. I have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. What is this? Look, look what he says in verse 3. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Paul's saying that even if he has a clear conscience, which he does, 
That even, that doesn't mean he's innocent. Why? Because Paul assumes something that we hardly ever assume, and that is that he doesn't even know himself. He doesn't even have enough wisdom to do self-evaluation. And so he is saying here, I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me. I have a very low opinion of my opinion of myself. See, he is completely off our map. He's off our grid. It's not that he's given up working hard and striving. We know he worked harder than anybody, right? It's not that he lacks confidence. Oh my goodness, he's like the most confident, bold preacher of the gospel in history. It's not that he's prideful. In the next chapter, he calls himself the least of all apostles, the scum of the earth. In 1 Timothy, he calls himself chief of all sinners. So he seems to have this strange ability to have great confidence, yet total knowledge of his weakness and sin. He has come to terms with the failures of his past, yet he does not allow his past to give him shame in the present. He knows his sins and his gifts. He knows his failures and his abilities, but he no longer connects any of those things to himself. His failures don't define him. His successes do not define him. Their evaluations do not control him. His own evaluations of himself do not control him. Friends, he is no longer playing the self-esteem game. He's just out of it. And this is crazy. This is an entirely different way of thinking about yourself. This is, what is this? This is what Keller calls gospel humility. Gospel humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but true gospel humility is thinking of yourself less. It's just thinking of yourself less, right? It's someone who is no longer connecting every experience and every event and every conversation to yourself. It's someone who is no longer has an ego that is deflated or inflated. Instead, the ego is just there, just like your toes, just like your knees. It's just there. It's healthy. It's not always drawing attention to itself. It's, 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 has this, you have this interior strength, this confidence, this balance. It's not having low self-esteem. It's not having high self-esteem. It's just stopping the game entirely. It's just thinking of yourself less, not thinking about yourself anymore because the self is whole. It's filled up and it's whole. Can you imagine living that way? Wouldn't that be amazing to live that way? Like no longer affected by criticism. No, you receive it as like, yeah, tell me what's wrong. I'd love to grow. You know, can you imagine? Opportunity for growth. Because you're just so, you, you're, you've stopped connecting your failures and your, and, your, and your sins and your victories with, with yourself. Can you imagine being that kind of person who doesn't compare yourself with other people anymore and isn't affected by the successes or the happiness of other families or other people around you? Can you imagine, can you imagine being a person who, like, when you walk by a mirror, you see a reflection in, like, a car door? Or you see, your, you, you see like, a group photo and your eyes just, like, go to yourself? And like you're, you're either immediately feel like triumph or despair, you know. Can you imagine being a person who just like looks at the group photo and like, that's awesome. What a great group of people. Can you imagine like being someone who doesn't like fantasize about success, like hitting self-esteem home runs, or doesn't feel failures? You're just you, taking pleasure. Doesn't that sound great? know anybody like that. (laughs) 
how could we become that? That's Paul's last question, how, how we can become and get that new self. Well, how did Paul do, do it? Well, look, we noted before that Paul is evoking this courtroom language, right? We're all after that verdict, that we matter, that we're important, that we're valuable. That's what we're after. Now, listen, Paul is basically saying, hear me on this. This is the most important thing. Paul is saying, for me, the trial is over. It's over. I'm not even in the courtroom anymore. The verdict has already been rendered. I'm done. You can't render a verdict on me anymore. I can't render a verdict on myself anymore. Because why? The trial's over. I'm out of the courtroom. Now I'm just living. Living for God. In fact, he says in verse 4, look, it is the Lord who judges me. He's saying only his opinion matters. Only his opinion counts. It's the Lord who judges me. Now, you might be saying, well, that's not good news, right? The Lord judging me? Well, listen, here is why, friends. Listen to me on this. The gospel of the cross that Paul just talked about in chapter 2, the, the cross that is foolishness to the world, is this message, that God, the only judge that matters, the only one that can render a true verdict on your life, took human form in the person of Jesus, subjected himself to an unjust trial in a human court, received undeserved accusations, allowed himself to be judged in our place as our substitute. On the cross, he was punished for sin. He absorbed the consequences of our pride and rebellion, and he was delivered over to death in judgment and hell instead of us. The gavel came down, the trial ended, the verdict was rendered, the judge was judged in our place. And why did he do this? To get us out of the courtroom, to set us free, like we're about to sing in just a few moments, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For anyone who trusts in the saving work of Jesus, the trial is over, the verdict is already rendered. You're out of the courtroom, and you are free. This is what Paul means in chapter 3, verse 21, when he says, No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is of God. Friends, you now belong to Jesus. You belong to another. You are not your own anymore. You belong to the one who has lived, has died, has risen for you. It's finished. And the trial is over. The verdict is rendered. You belong to Christ. And what that means, the truest thing about you is you are the beloved of God in Christ. You are the beloved. And that can give you an ego that is no longer deflated, no longer puffed up, but is just whole, filled up. See, friends, this is crazy. This is upside down. Only the gospel can give you this only the gospel preaches this message. Every other religion in the world calls you back into the courtroom, right? You got to perform so that you can be rendered a good verdict. Keller says only the gospel says the verdict comes before the performance, right? Jesus has already died. Judgment has already come down. Sin is already paid for. And now you just live freely in response to what he's done. Your sins, your successes, your failures, your victories, none of those things any longer have any bearing on your identity because what is most true about you is that you belong to Christ and therefore you are free. Only the gospel of the cross can do that, can heal an ego in pain, 
can take you out of the courtroom, take you off that treadmill of performance. Only the gospel can heal the way we think about ourselves and finally help us to become the one God has saved us to be. So what should you do with this, friends? Well, there might be some of you here, and I think there probably are, who maybe have never really heard the gospel talked about this way before. And maybe you thought the gospel just is, Christianity is just like about a bunch of rules to follow and being a good person and coming to church, whatever. Look, maybe you're seeing for the first time that the gospel is actually an utterly upside-down transformative message about what God wants to do to transform you forever. That he wants to give you a completely new way to live, a new way to think about yourself. Wouldn't it be amazing to no longer be responsible for your own verdict, to get out of the courtroom, to stop this painful competition, to finally be at rest? Don't you want that? That is God's free gift to you by grace. All that's required is for you to ask for it. You can say, Lord, freely give it to me for Jesus' sake. Now, many of you here, most of you here, I would guess, are a little bit more like me. I mean, I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. And yet this afternoon, I will become the Gumby Man again. I will get sucked right back in the courtroom. And I will be up and down and up and down and down and down and down and down and down and back up and up and up. And that's just me all over again every day, right? So what do we do? I'll tell you what you need to do. When you find yourself back in the courtroom and, you, and you, you're, feeling, you're looking for that verdict, I matter, you feel the evidence mounting up either for the defense or the prosecution, right? you got to stop and remember what's true. You know, there is no one more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. And you've got to say to yourself, what am I doing here? What am I doing in this stupid, empty courtroom? Nobody's here. The judge is gone. The jury is, it doesn't even exist anymore. It's done. It's over. What am I doing here? I belong to Christ. I am the beloved. And you just got to keep coming back to the cross. It's like they say in AA, right? Keep coming back. It works. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. It works if you work it. So keep coming back to the cross again and again. Take to the cross your fears. Take to the cross your anxieties. Take to the cross your failures. Take to the cross your successes. Take to the cross your sins. Take to the cross your victories. Keep bringing them back to him, asking Jesus to set you free so that more and more and more and more and more and more of your identity is found and rooted in the truth that you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. You are the beloved. And only then, only then, only then will you be free. Don't you want that? Let's pray. Let me just spend a few moments speaking to the Lord, doing, doing business uh, with God who is with you and hears you right now. Maybe you, would, um, maybe you feel led to just receive the grace of this good news for the first time. Maybe uh, you're realizing that though you've been a Christian for many years, you live in the courtroom every single day and are just so exhausted from living in this fragile state of the ego without Christ. Are you not being merely human? So maybe just confess that and turn back to the Lord and ask for his grace to live freely as the one who belongs to Christ.
We're going to respond to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to do that with a song. Uh, So we're going to sing this song, Lord, I Need You, and in the midst of that song, I'll lead us in prayer. So let's sing this song not just as a song. Let's, Let's sing it as a prayer today. are trapped uh, in cycles of death in the way that we think about ourselves. Uh, We are hungry and empty, and we live every day um, longing uh, for that honor, for that verdict that only you can give. Help us, O God. Help us this week to know who we are, that we belong to the one who has lived and died and risen for us, and therefore we are free. We especially pray for those among us today who need this message, uh, who are sorrowful, who are overwhelmed, those of us who are broken and sad, those of us who are addicted, 
or depressed, uh, those of us who are overwhelmed or sorrowful. We pray that you would fill broken hearts today with the knowledge that Jesus Christ has given everything, the judge, judged in our place, so that we can be called the beloved. And may we live as a community, both in lives and through our words, that proclaim the good news, that we can know freedom through Jesus and through his work on the cross. We need you. Let's stand and sing together. Lord, we need you. We need you. prayers through Jesus, who is our sacrifice in priest. And we pray in his name. Amen.